Good morning. Um, I'm Charles Garland, um, the new church planner for Midtown that you guys have been praying for and encouraging and helping a lot in the whole process of us getting here. I um, really want to thank you. Uh, one of the big uh, issues for us in coming to Tucson was uh, wanting to know if the churches that were already here were enthusiastic about us coming. And uh, especially Steve and Amy, but your whole church has been very encouraging to us, and we really appreciate it. Um, I got to brag on you yesterday. Um, you know, when you have a compliment when you're not around, it's usually good. But somebody texted me and said they had a friend moving to, I don't know where, somebody said there was going to be 45 minutes away from downtown, so they're asking about other churches. I, Phoenix, I guess. But said, uh, tell me about Desert Springs. And uh, that was fun because I got to say, this is a, it's a really beautiful community of believers in a place where community is hard to come by and that you had a great pastor, that he's not only a, uh, a smart man who's a good preacher, which is not that hard to find, but he also loves and cares for people in the flock. And uh, it was fun to get to say that about you. And I hope you feel uh, what you have here is as special as it is because uh, it sure seems so to me. So... Um, that's enough happy talk. We're going to lament now. Um, <laughs> Psalm 13. If you'll turn there, uh, it's uh, the season of Advent. We're in the purple right now, which is uh, lament and longing and waiting. It's not celebration yet for us. Really, you know, if we could push our holly jolly songs till after the 25th, it would really fit better with our calendar in the church because uh, Advent, like Lent, is purple. It's a time of uh, reflection and longing and lament. And that's why people like you gather during Christmas as happy people who live in a pretty beautiful place and sing about rejoicing in a minor key. Right? And you, you sing about being in lonely exile um, because you are. And all of our rejoicing does have a minor key to it because um, even though Jesus has come in his first advent, he hasn't come yet in his second advent to finish what he's begun, to set things back finally right. And so in the meantime, we wait in lonely exile. And the meantime is... The mean time, right? It's a, it's a time where as tantalizingly close as the good life comes for us, uh, we never reach it. And for big swaths of our lives, we live uh, in what feels very acutely like lonely exile and where we have the need to lament. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be, and uh, it breaks our hearts that things are not the way they're supposed to be. So... Purple reminds us that the promises, even though they're true, aren't fulfilled yet. We're not home yet. And so during Advent, Christians lament. Uh, We gather together to remind ourselves to lament and to remind ourselves that we're not home. And Psalm 13 is a beautiful example biblically of lament. And so that's what we're going to think about together this morning. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, uh, that we might understand your word, um, but especially that you'd open our hearts, that we would feel uh, what is provoked by your word in this passage. Um, We pray that you would uh, grant us greater depth in lament 
as your people and greater hope in our lament. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me the beginning of Psalm 13. This is to the choir master, a psalm of David. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not very comfortable with lament. Um, I think it requires more emotional depth than I bring to the game. And, um, and it is messier than I want my faith to be. Uh, lament isn't tidy. Uh, I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine told me uh, he was a pastor in Florida and had a woman in his church who was an elderly woman. And she seemed to be pretty depressed and miss church a lot, and when she would come, she'd sit on the back row and slip out during the benediction a lot of times. And so he went to visit her just to hear her story, to know what was going on with her. And so she told him that she had uh, she'd grown up on the west coast of Florida before there was anything there, any of the uh, retirement or tourist attractions. She said they were genuine Florida crackers, you know, from back in the day. And um, lived on the west coast of Florida. They were Christians, church-going people, she and her parents and her sister, who was 14. Her sister, the 14-year-old, was the organist at the church. But she said uh, one day the minister of the church uh, left his family and ran off with their 14-year-old sister. And um, they went to Canada to avoid the statutory rape laws. Um, and everyone was devastated by this. A couple of years later, when she was 16, they finally came back for a visit. And uh, the first day that they arrived, this woman said her father shot the preacher dead. And um, said uh, her uncle was actually the police chief, and in those days there was quite a lot of sympathy for the father in his vigilanteism and basically told him, if you stay here, we'll have to prosecute you, but if you just disappear, we won't pursue the matter. And so he took her and her mother, and they went to live in a shack in the Okefenokee Swamp. Uh, job, his dad, her dad got a job in the turpentine business. So I don't know if there's any part of this... Uh, Okie smoky swamp turpentine business that appeals to you, but it shouldn't. You know, it's terrible. Um, instead, he became very angry and vindictive towards God and the church, somewhat understandably. Um, that he became violently anti-Christian, that he burned his Bible and hated the church. Became kind of a hermit, wouldn't really let them have any contact with people outside. And this was her upbringing. And she said... To my friend Andrew, she said, in spite of this, God um, God saved me. Uh, he's gracious to me. 
I, I actually love him. I love his people. But whenever I go into a church, I'm still just terrified. And so sometimes I can handle it and sometimes I can't handle it. And that sort of why you see going on what's going on with me. She said, I used to beg God to heal me uh, from this terror. But then she said, I realized that some some Christians have crippled legs uh, that they know are never going to be uh, well again until Jesus returns. And she said, I, I have a broken mind. And I'm waiting for that day when I see Jesus and my mind will be made right again. And so she said, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me when I'm not at church. Don't worry about me when I slip out during the benediction. I'm okay because I know Jesus and I know that I'll see him. Is that okay? Um, is that story okay? Is her take on the faith okay? Um, it's messy, isn't it? There's nothing platitudinous you'd put on a bumper sticker in her story, right? You know, there's, it's, um, it's a mess, um, but it's, it's a hopeful mess. <laughs> uh, her lament is a hopeful lament. Um, she's living in the meantime and feeling the meanness of the meantime between the first and second advent of Jesus. And she's muddling through how she can with a fair amount of honesty that probably more than most of us have with regard to God. Um, but I think she's very similar to David in the psalm here. As he's muddling through in a very messy, untidy way with what it means to live in the meantime, lamenting, but lamenting as a believer, lamenting with hope. And so I want us to look at this kind of under those two heads. First, that we have to learn to lament. And second, we have to learn to lament with hope. Um, so lament first. This prayer is some prayer, right? A strange prayer. It's not like your usual Christmas list prayer. God, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. Please do this and that and this. It's more of, it's more of like just a uh, unbridling of his emotions and his heart before God. He's not really asking for anything. He doesn't really seem like he's expecting this prayer to be answered in any kind of concrete way with some epiphany of knowledge or some change of circumstance. He wants the change of circumstance clearly. That's implied. But he just says, how long, O Lord? That's his prayer. It's a groan. It's a, it's a complaint, really. You, you're abandoning me. When I need you the most, you're abandoning me. What, what is going on? What's what's wrong here? What what are you doing? I don't understand. Um, I feel forsaken by you. I'm bouncing off the bottom of despair, and I, I don't know what to do, and I can't take it. Um, I don't know if other religions get invited to pray with that kind of uh, candor or honesty, but um, it's a pretty remarkable thing that God uh, not only accepts but invites prayers like this. That it's okay to pray this way. C.S. Lewis, a quote in the front of your bulletin, which just set the tone of happy Christmas cheer, I know, um, who's written poignantly about grief and uh, um, the problem of pain and a grief observed. Um, it's not exactly in prayer form, but he says, Where is God? Go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. 
and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. And you may as well turn away because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. So, don't make a mistake here, though. Lewis and David, in their lament, in their perplexity about God and why he hides himself, are believers praying. These are believing prayers. Lament is a believer's posture. Uh, saying, I actually, strong faith makes lament worse because a Christian who's genuinely uh, convinced of the truth about who God is and what he does in his world knows that God hears and knows that God sees and knows that God could change any circumstance you have in a moment. And he won't. And so strong faith makes this grief worse. It makes the meantime meaner because when you pray and God won't answer you, you know he could. And so it's a believer's prayer that they're praying, that David is praying here. Um, but it's also clear that this is the life of the believer, that lament is normal. And I know that's almost unpatriotic to say in America, but lament is normal. And the Christian life is a life of lament. Um, until the second advent, we will live uh, lives like our Savior's life. He was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And lament will be part of our prayer. It will be part of our worship until he comes again. And um, I know you know that, but when your life is as good as a lot of your lives are, it's hard to remember that. You feel like if I'm lamenting, something has gone off the rails in my relationship with God, and that's not really true. Uh, lament is God's intention for us for a lot of our lives as Christians. And so, um, not comfortable with it, though. <laughs> and I don't like lament. For one thing, it seems irreverent to me. Like this prayer, I'd be embarrassed to pray this prayer that David prays because I would think I was being irreverent. You can't talk to God that way. Who do you think you are? And and then it seems ungrateful. Like if I'm going to lament, like I have to close my eyes to every good thing God's ever done for me, and it just feels whiny to lament uh, like you're an ingrate. And so I don't want to lament for that reason either, and it feels weak. And good grief, I feel weak enough. I don't want to feel weak and uh, lament. I'd rather just not think about it than lament uh, because I don't like feeling weak. Now, it's an uncomfortable subject for me, but the question you're faced with as a Christian is, what else are you going to do with your sorrow? What, do you else, what else are you going to do with your heartbreak in the meantime if you don't lament, if you don't go to God with it? I mean, if you, you do what your neighbors do, you medicate it, right? I'll just dive further into the bottle of the screen and not think about things. Um, or you can distract yourself away from it. Try not to think. Um, I like it when people just handle it. Suck it up, buttercup, right? You know, just, I don't like to handle my sorrow this way. I like it when you handle your sorrow this way. But, you know, just be a little tougher. And, uh, you know, a little stiff upper lip wouldn't hurt here. And John Calvin... Uh, embarrassed me with this. I was reading his commentary and I don't usually laugh reading his commentary, but he said, uh, he said, David does not complain of a calamity of a few days duration. 
as the effeminate and cowardly are accustomed to do. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like, he's like a few days and then you complain you're effeminate and cowardly. I'm like, give me like 10 minutes and I'm already whining. So this isn't good news. But, but man, the ideal self just handles pain, right? I'm just tough enough, but I'm not the ideal self. Um, David's way tougher than me, and he is lamenting to no end. Christians, you think, what else are you going to do with your pain? Well, you could, uh, this is kind of the American Christian answer is you can overpower it with your faith. Overpower heartbreak with your faith. Um, that is, if you just know enough, you know, that, that if you're really spiritually mature enough, you'll just be able to say, well, I know this looks bad from the outside, but really when you have the perspective that I have, you realize that God has a great purpose in this, and, and uh, I realize, you know, I realize what he's teaching me through it, and so really I'm rejoicing in it. It's really great, you know. And, but, you know, that, that feels like the spiritually mature thing to say. Like if you, or you feel like if you were more spiritually mature, you wouldn't be lamenting. You would be soaring on some sort of higher plane of spirituality that doesn't exist. Um, I mean, it's codified in some places where you say if, if you have enough faith, you won't suffer at all in this life. That's a pretty mean thing to teach. Um, but what most of us do as Christians with our heartbreak is we, we moralize it. We say, um, we supply our own set of Job's friends in the back of our minds that say, if you're suffering, well, what did you do? What did you do? Know what Job's friends said? I mean, they waited seven days, which impresses me too. But And then when they finally spoke, they said, well, nothing comes from nothing, Job. <laughs> what did you do? And tell me you don't think that way when you're suffering. What did I do? What did I do? Um, it's not the appropriate way for Christians to respond to suffering. It's to moralize it. And it's harder for us because we believe in total depravity. Right? So that means... That if you're looking for a reason for your suffering in some moral failure on your part, you can find it. Right? Because you're the people who say that our best deeds are tainted with, uh, ill motive. Everything's tainted with sin. Our, our, our best deeds are like filthy rags, uh, as Isaiah said. And we get that and we talk about it. We actually believe it. We think, you know, my, I'm not impressed with myself morally. I do realize the best things I do are tainted. So when things go wrong for me, the indictment is easy to write. Well, of course, this is why God is leaving me uh, in silence. Of course, this is why he's hiding his face from me. Of course, this is why uh, these things are going badly for me and my family. Uh, why wouldn't they? God's not blind. He knows my heart more than I do, and I know enough. And so your good theology makes your suffering worse because you believe in depravity, as you should. But here's the thing. If you believe in depravity, uh, you also believe in irresistible grace. And in your lament and in your sorrow, you are taught by the grace of God that you have to take as seriously as you take your sin. You're taught that your suffering is never a payment or punishment for your sin. Your suffering is never a punishment or payment for your sin. Jesus has been punished for your sins. At worst, your suffering 
is the loving and gentle discipline of your father for your sins, right, at worst. And so in your lament, as you try to unpack why your life has gone off the rails, why you are in the suffering that you're in, um, God is mad at me and is taking it out on me is not the answer. Uh, God may be a stern father who's, who's, uh, who is dealing with you firmly, but he's a father. So you have to believe the grace of God as much as you believe the depravity of man when you try to sort out your suffering. Um, and that's how, when you're left to lament, you can lament in hope. Because David does have hope in his lament here. The last two verses and 5 and 6 are pretty cheerful, really. Um, I've trusted in your chesed, your steadfast love, this rich word that talks about God's uh, uh, unbreakable love and commitment to us, his covenant faithfulness, his uh, his face turned towards us in love that can never be turned away. His steadfast love. Heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. So what happened? What happened between verse 4 and verse 5? Nothing, right? Nothing happens between verse 4 and verse 5. Nothing's changed. Um, it's just in the midst of his lament uh, David starts talking to himself instead of just listening to himself, right? He starts, now, I, I've trusted in your steadfast love. I have reason to trust in your steadfast love. This, this opening of your heart uh, that you've done to let me see your attitude towards me, that you're willing uh, to move to me in mercy, that you want good for me like a father wants, that you're not my enemy anymore. Um, I know that. I know that. In the midst of my trial, I know that. It's as true as anything I know, he says, basically. This heart of God, it's the reason that God turned towards us uh, in mercy and said, I'm going to come and redeem and restore my broken world, my rebellious creatures, instead of crushing them. When he said, I'm going to take Abraham and bless all the nations of the world through him, I'm going to set the world back upright through his family. And um, It's the reason that he's promised that he's going to set his king on Zion that David has written about before this, that I'm going to send a Messiah who's going to fix the world. It's, it's the reason that Jesus came in his first advent, is that God's attitude towards us is this covenant, faithful, deep, familial love that he really is not against us, that knowing everything about us, the worst of us, he won't turn his face away from us, but he's committed to come to us in mercy. And um, it's also the thing that caused Jesus to go to the cross for us. His chesed, his steadfast love, where basically he endured the first four verses of this psalm for us, right? He, in his cry of dereliction on the cross from the other psalm, Psalm 22, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he prayed in Gethsemane in his agony, asking for God to hear him, but found heaven silent, but found the Father hiding himself from him so that he was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. That's what Steve prayed earlier. He was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. And so when we are in lament, when we have heaven silent to us and God hiding his face and we feel God forsaken, then we look at the cross and we say, I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
I know that you forsook your son, and therefore you will never forsake me. And um, this is like the bedrock when uh, everything else is in swirl of suffering and lament in your life. Is that I know that if God forsook his own son for me, he will never forsake me. He will never forsake me. And that's our hope. It's what makes us confident that the promise that Jesus made about his second advent is true. That I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come for you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to make all things new. We take those promises, which uh, we believe only on the basis of Jesus having promised those things. You don't have evidence for that otherwise in your life. But you know that Jesus Christ, who is reliable and faithful and loves you, has promised you, I'm coming back for you, and I'm going to make things new. I'm going to take away the curse. You're going to live in a world with me face-to-face where I'm never silent, where my you never feel forsaken by me, where you don't have enemies anymore to rejoice over you, and where you don't have tears anymore. And I'm going to do that for you because of my steadfast love. And uh, the pathway there is going to be crazy. And what I do in your life on the way there is going to be inexplicable to you. You're never going to understand my reasons. You're never going to understand my timing. But I promise you, I'm coming for you, and you're going to be with me. And it's going to be all right. And that's the hope we have when we lament. All right? And uh, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm so impressed with David that he got there in his prayer because he doesn't know, like, what does he know, 25% of what we know about God and his plan and his chesed mercy. We know Jesus. We've seen the first advent. On this side of it, the waiting is a lot easier than it was for him, and he got there. It's very impressive to me, but it's still hard for us, even with all we know. Um, We're not good at lament, I would I would say, I would say this church is probably better than most churches at Lament, and you're not good at it, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> um, but what if we were? What if we were good at Lament? Um, I've never seen it in a, a book about making your church great that uh, <laughs> you should learn to be good at Lament. But, but if you think about it, people who lament deeply, if you had a church of people who knew how to lament deeply... Um, that would be a pretty special place, right? One thing you'd 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 sing more in the minor key, but um, that's okay, right? Um, it's a false note when every song is in a major key and ends with a big crescendo. Um, this is the meantime, right? We got we use the minor key. This this excruciating prayer is written for whom? The choir master, right? not the choir leader, the choir master. <laughs> if you know choir leaders, that's usually what they are. Um, but this is for us to sing, right? to teach each other how to lament. We sing together in the minor key to learn how to lament together. But a church that got good at that would be empathetic in a way that most churches aren't. Most churches feel cold to people who are suffering because you think, Everyone here has got it together, and I don't want to harsh the vibe by coming in and talking about what's broken. I don't want to, I don't want to bother everybody with my problems. And, uh, but a church that knew how to lament would be empathetic. 
They wouldn't give pat answers, healing the wounds of God's people lightly uh, with platitudes, but would probably know how to sit in silence with people who are suffering, to pray groaning prayers instead of just fix-it prayers for people who are suffering, and just would learn how to be present with people, not to put people on a grief timetable like, don't you think you should be over it by now kind of stuff. And that would be pretty special. Have a church like that. Be a church that uh, runs towards brokenness because you're not pretending that the world's perfect like a suburbanite, right? Because the suburbs are brilliant. You, you shelter, shelter yourself from all the things you don't want to see. You don't see brokenness. You don't see poverty. You don't see death. You don't see sickness. Um, you just see nice things. And Christians, uh, whom God has put in such lovely circumstances, learn to lament, and then they start running toward brokenness, inviting brokenness into their lives, inviting the sufferings of others into their lives um, when they could easily avoid it. And that's also pretty beautiful. Right? It reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? That, like, he invited suffering. He ran toward brokenness instead of away from it. Uh, if you're involved in uh, pushing back against the curse on the world and social justice issues or mercy ministry, uh, learning to lament gives you endurance uh, because you don't just say, wow, it's, it's futile for me to try to make any kind of a difference in a world that's as broken as this one is. Uh, I'm going to get burned out just as fast as people who don't know Jesus. But if you learn to lament and develop the emotional capacity for lament before God, then you have hope to say, look, I, I don't expect things necessarily to get all that better. I don't expect necessarily to see all kind of fruit from what I'm doing. But I, I live in hope. I live in hope. And I lament what's broken. But um, my hope is that Jesus has said he was going to come back and he's going to make all things new. And my trust is in that. It gives you endurance to last. And uh, and it just makes you a church that when people come in from the outside, uh, don't feel repelled by your superficiality. Um, but who say maybe maybe these people genuinely know God. Uh, because they know the world's actually broken, and they're not trying to cover their eyes from it and be happy, happy, happy all the time. Um, they're happy, but they can lament. And, man, would your friends or your family members not love to come to a place where there's that kind of reality in the faith? And that would be nice to see. Okay, so Lewis, again, he talks about talks about suffering well, and he says when you're suffering, um, a little bit of courage is better than a lot of knowledge. <laughs> knowledge is easy. <laughs> I like knowledge. <laughs> courage is hard. You know, um, a little bit of courage, though, helps you a lot more than a lot of knowledge when you're suffering. Isn't that true? Isn't that unfair? Don't you think <laughs> as hard as we've worked to try to get smart about the faith that that should make us better Christians when we suffer? But a little courage is better than... Uh, a lot of knowledge. He says, a little human sympathy is better than a lot of courage. A little human sympathy is better than a lot of courage when you're suffering. Just someone who can be empathetic to you. But he said, a, a flicker of the love of God is better than all kind of human sympathy. And uh, it's what David gets to here. He gets to a flicker of the love of God. I've trusted in your steadfast love. Ugh, I'm still going to. I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust in your steadfast love. And that's beautiful. So 
Happy Christmas time. <laughs> but not quite yet. Right? This is the purple. This is the meantime. But in the purple, the chesed of God is the reality of your life. And the promise of the second advent is the reality of your life. It's the reality of your life. So lament, but lament with hope. Right? Now let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you so much that you let us um, see this kind of a prayer and that you would actually invite this kind of a prayer from people like us. We are intimidated by our guilt. We're intimidated by uh, how uh, lightly and frivolously we've served you. And yet you invite us to open our hearts to you. And we pray that you would open them. We pray that you would let us um, not run away from and distract our pain. Uh, but that you'd let us grieve. Uh, but we pray that you would cause your steadfast love and your son's promises to us to ring loudly in our ears while we grieve. And we ask in his name. Amen.